Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, good afternoon, friends. Happy Tuesday. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary. A lot to get to on the program here today. Your phone calls, your text, of course, 403-974-8255. A lot going on in Ottawa today, including the uh, election of a new speaker. It's pretty rare that we have to do this. Pretty rare that a speaker doesn't make it through uh, a term. Uh, that, of course, has happened here with the resignation of Anthony Rota. Today, Greg Fergus was elected by members of parliament to be the next Speaker of the House. So what the latest on that uh, question period? Uh, we'll get to some of that. But off the top this afternoon, a couple of contentious government bills I want to get an update on. And they certainly do overlap in some ways. What started out is Bill C-11. Uh, the uh, modernization, the government says, of the Broadcasting Act and Bill C-18, the Online News Act. Some important developments there. Regarding the latter, C-18, as you probably know already, Meta, which is the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, has simply said rather than uh, us having to pay for having links to news on our platforms, we will simply stop providing links to news on our platforms in Canada. So Canadians have discovered this, uh, that there was no sharing of news on either Facebook or Instagram. Google may soon follow suit. And if there's no Facebook, there's no Google, there's no anything. Because as it stands right now, this act is designed really to only apply to those two companies. Story today, draft regulations the government had been hoping would convince Google to reconsider a move to block news won't do the job, Google said. The company isn't expected to pull news from Google Search or Google News right away, uh, but they don't see a path forward here. So they haven't been swayed by the government's pitch. So that's a big problem. Now, meanwhile, over on Bill C-11, the government attempting to uh, take the uh, CanCon, the broadcast regulations that apply to radio and TV, and now to try to apply them to the digital realm. Now, again, this was supposed to be about the tech giants like Netflix or Spotify. Well, it seems pretty clear it's going to go well beyond that. So November 28th is the deadline for online services with audio or video content that meet a $10 million annual revenue threshold. They will have to register with the CRTC by November 28th. So what does that registration entail? What kind of regulation are we going to see here? Anyway, joining us uh, for the latest on all of this, somebody who's been uh, watching all of this unfold very closely, very pleased to welcome back to the program here this afternoon, Peter Menzies, who is a former vice chair of the CRTC, a national newspaper award-winning journalist, past editor of the Calgary Herald, and of course, senior fellow of the McDonald Laurier Institute. Peter, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Always a pleasure. Thanks very much. Let's start with C-18, the uh, Online News Act, which has not gone well, as we all know. Meta said, we're out. We're not going to be a part of this. Google may soon be behind them. What, what do you make of the latest developments there? Well, it's not surprising. I think what the government came up with, it's September 1st when it came out with the draft regulations, was very naive. Um, I think it indicated that they really hadn't been listening. Um, they, were, they were continuing to not listen 
to uh, Google in this case, uh, mm-hmm. Meta is gone. Um, we're not going to see uh, they're they're not getting back into the news business unless um, Bill C eighteen is completely repealed. Then they might, but uh, they seem happy where they are at right now. Um, so uh, they want one hundred seventy two million dollars from Google, and they want the CRTC to oversee it, and they. Blah, 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 blah. All they addressed was maybe putting a cap on it. But there are, are big problems from Google's point of view on that. People can can, can debate that. But uh, whatever they are, uh, Google is digging in its heels because I think primarily it, it doesn't want to set a precedent in Canada in terms of the structure of this legislation that would cost it billions and billions on a global scale. And I think it disagrees with the premise, but right. I mean, I think you can get some money from them, but not the way this bill's constructed. Well, that's the thing, and, and Google's been pretty clear all along about their feelings here. So maybe it shouldn't surprise us if Google heads for the exit as Meta did. But how much of a disaster would that be for the government here, given that these are the only two entities that this legislation applies to? Well, I think it's been a disaster for the government uh, ever since the passage of the bill, in part because it refused to listen. And it, it was very naive. It it seemed to be um, looking for a fight right from the start. It seemed that, uh, uh, and this is what I hear anyway, that folks in the prime minister office really liked the idea of um, uh, the prime minister being able to bring big tech to heel and uh, and 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 put them in their place. And as it's turned out, um, he's taken. He's getting pummeled by these guys. And part of it is, I think, the confrontational attitude. And part of it is just naivety about how the internet and how business business works. So, I frankly, I mean, the government needs to find a way to declare victory while in full retreat right now. And um, Google has them right where they want them, but. It's not coincidental, I don't think, that the government's popularity has been plummeting while all of this nonsense is going on. You mentioned Meta. Uh, you know, they're they're gone. Um, the government is still acting as though maybe there's this this uh, back and forth going on, as though they're somehow fighting Meta. We got to stand up against Meta. We can't give in. Like, Meta's gone. Like, who's who does the government think they're fighting with here? I don't know. Like they say, they seem to have been convinced right from the start that Meta was bluffing. There's there's an underlying assumption behind the whole thing that there is an enormous economic value to news that somebody has been exploiting at the debt to the detriment of the Canadian news industry. And unfortunately, the facts of the matter are, and I don't want to hurt the feelings of any journalists or or news organizations through this, is that the economic value of news on its own isn't that great. Um, So companies like Meta can just leave it and feel basically no impact at all. Um, And, you know, you got to realize, you got to recognize reality uh, when you're dealing with these things and you build legislation that's built on a false premise. And, you know, a kind of a fantasy of the way you wish the world was rather than a a grown-up understanding of how the world really is, is just making things worse. 
it's interesting in, in both cases here these are different pieces of legislation but we're, we're putting a lot into the the lap of the CRTC so maybe there's there's going to be nothing for the CRTC to adjudicate as far as the online news act is concerned if Google and and uh, meta are gone but it was up to the CRTC to decide which news organizations would be eligible for the CRTC to review these these agreements and of course we're asking the CRTC now to basically regulate digital broadcasting via C11 on top of everything else the CRTC is supposed to be doing. Yeah, well, the CRTC has stopped doing a lot of the stuff it's supposed to be doing because it's so overwhelmed by the new work that C11 has given it. You mentioned its role in C18 is to designate like who the money Google is supposed to pay it to. They've said that they won't have a list of that done until the end of 2024, <laughs> which, I mean, I, you know, it's 16 months from now, for me, in CRTC years, that could be two and a half years from now before they'd have it. So, I mean, how can you, there's, there's a genuine lack of coordination going on there. And now, rather than keeping life simple and just going and getting money from web giants, which is what C11, we were always told C11 was about, yeah. the CRTC has really gone big on the extent to which it wants to regulate the internet just as if it was a licensed broadcasting system, which is going to cause huge problems. And, you know, regulating podcasting the same as you would a licensed broadcaster is a fundamentally flawed idea, in my view. Right. So this was supposed to be about the, you know, the tech giants, or maybe in this case, Netflix or Spotify. But uh, so this, this threshold seems a lot lower. So any online entity, and this could include social media companies or anybody else that has video or podcasts on the platform, the revenue threshold is $10 million. So, I mean, that's still a lot of money, but this is casting a much wider net than we were told, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would have thought your line would have been, you know, no less than 50 and maybe $100 million because right. you're capturing a lot of the money there and you're capturing the people who are having the big impact and and that can make the big contributions to, you know, that's that's where you get Netflix and, 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 and others in terms of that. Ten million bucks, you know, I guess it's real money, but, you know, I was saying to somebody earlier today, I mean, it costs you a hundred bucks to take the grandkids to the movies these days, right? So it, it, it's not as much money as it used to be, and those are relatively small companies. So I can see some of the smaller foreign streaming services just leaving Canada. Um, because, uh, as the saying goes, the juice just won't be worth the squeeze. What's the thing? I mean, you know, the, just registering with the CRTC doesn't doesn't force these companies to do anything. The question is, what is it going to lead to once they start to regulate this? The expectation that there be a certain percentage of Canadian content or that it be given greater profile, like th there is something coming in terms of regulations here. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, one of the discussions will be how much these companies should be contributing to the Canadian uh, film and television system, right. as it's known, the official CanCon network and that sort of stuff. So, I mean, you've got a 10 million company and somebody comes in there and starts talking, okay, what what are we going to take, 20%, uh, 30% of your revenues? I mean, that's what, that's what Bell uh, CTV pays in off, off the top. They'll be asking that you know, that streaming companies pay that. Now you got a $10 million company and somebody's going to ask you to spend two or three million a year supporting CanCon. I mean, you're, you're just going to leave, right? Yeah. If you can, you're not going to, you can't afford that. 
you can't afford to take like that. Nobody, nobody can take. I mean, maybe, maybe Netflix can take thirty percent of its revenues, but it's going to come from it's going to come from someplace. So, it's that's a real problem. And and as they get into, you know, one of the decisions they made that they were going to include, they were going to they were going to regulate uh, online news organizations and right. online uh, porn um, yeah. because the license. You know, within the license system, they're regulated. So they said they we should it wouldn't be fair to regulate the licensed people and leave the unlicensed people unregulated. Which again, I have a real problem with because you know when you're a licensed company, it, there's a transaction there. You negotiate the terms, you know, and and certain obligations that you take on and agree to behave in a certain way because you're getting the privilege of having a license. Um, to use Spectrum, which is a crown asset, on behalf, you know, in the public interest. But so you make a transaction, you agree to it, and you can choose not to fall, you know, you can, you don't have to take the license. Um, when you're an online entity, you're going to be regulated the same way, but you get none of the benefits and privileges of being, and protections of being a licensed broadcaster. So I can't see that being very popular. So in the meantime, as, as we've got, I think, you know, two separate messes here with these both of these pieces of legislation, you know, the problem that this was all supposed to address to to help the state of journalism or broadcasting in Canada, like it's hard to see how any of this is is helping anything. In some ways, maybe it's actually hurting, isn't it? Yeah, that's the biggest issue. I mean, the, the Canadian film and television industry has had a spec last 10 years, aside from COVID. Um, but they bounce back really well after that. Their their revenues have never been better. There's never been more jobs for actors, screenwriters, etc. And even the old official CanCon industry, which is a, a pretty old-fashioned construct, and you know many people say it hasn't really been that successful, particularly in film and television, um, more so perhaps in in music. Um, it, it, you know that trying to take that and switch it into the internet you know like what problem are you what problem were you trying to solve remember right, right. And the, the problem apparently was getting money from web giants and i think they've they've lost sight of the prize and now they're just trying to regulate everything and i think it's it, it has to slow down investment you know so all those jobs that were created now every nobody knows what the rules are nobody knows what the expectations are in canada anymore and it's not good, and like I said, you're going to have you're going to have some streaming services almost certainly leaving. They'll sell their most popular popular stuff to probably to Bell to Crave, but they'll just take off. And Canada is just going to be, you know, the internet had so much promise for you know this big being able to reach out and touch the whole world, and Canada is just going to start getting isolated more and more. That's the concern. We'll see where it all goes from here. Much more. McDonald, Laurier.ca. Peter, always appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Hey, thanks so much for your interest, and thanks so much for the time. All the best, Peter. Take care. Uh, that is Peter Menzies, uh, former journalist, former editor-in-chief of the Calgary Herald. He was uh, vice chair of the CRTC and is now a senior fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute. So, no, unfortunately, it's not a pretty picture on either front here. And I think the government was warned that they were digging these holes for themselves. But they ignored that, and they, they kept pressing forward, and, and here we are. Welcome back. 
back in February, uh, law enforcement agencies in Canada, the U.S., and other countries, including the U.K., New Zealand, Australia, put out a joint statement, kind of a joint warning about what they call a global financial sextortion crisis. Uh, The press release here says uh, the FBI and our international law enforcement partners are issuing a joint warning about a global financial sextortion crisis. Our agencies have seen an explosion in incidents of minor boys around the world being coerced into sending explicit images online and then extorted for money, what's referred to as financial sextortion. Now, unfortunately, if anything, the problem has only worsened since then. So this is happening regularly. Uh, to to teenage boys in Canada, the U.S., and other countries. There's a really interesting uh, in-depth piece in the Washington Post this week. Putting, you know, some some more context around this problem, like how it manifests itself, more importantly, how it's impacting the victims. And our next guest had the opportunity to speak with a lot of the, the teenagers, a lot of the families who found themselves caught up in this awful situation and what can be learned from those cases, what we can do uh, to really clamp down on, on this kind of a crime. So joining us to talk more about the piece, which uh, you can find at WashingtonPost.com. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Christopher Moody. He's a lecturer in journalism and broadcasting at Appalachian State University. Uh, he's a reporter whose work has appeared in the Washington Post, New York Times, New York Magazine, ABC News, and many other platforms. Uh, Christopher Moody, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, first of all, let's let's define what it is we're talking about here. And I guess, I guess it's straightforward enough in some respects, but sextortion, it's it's extortion that, that has a, a sexual component to it, and, and that involves the sharing of intimate images. But kind of give us an overview of, of how we, we understand the definition here. Well, traditionally, uh, online sextortion, which of course is the combination of sex and extortion, um, involved most of the time, women, young women or children, where a um, a scammer or a predator would uh, collect images of a woman and then extort her uh, with threats of posting those images far and wide unless she agreed to send him or her more content, more right. sexually explicit uh, images. And this was was a tactic to try to get people to send them uh, more explicit kinds of things. But what we're talking about now, which has been on the rise in just the past couple of years, is financial sextortion. These are predators who are not interested in receiving sexual content for um, for pleasure or anything like that. They're interested in doing it uh, for financial reasons, for trying to extort money from the victims. And this has transferred um, the victims from being mostly women to now mostly young men. We're talking about teenagers. We're talking about boys, often 13 to 18 years old. And they will be online on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, a lot of these social media platforms. And uh, a young woman uh, about their age will appear and the account looks real. They have lots of followers, um, somebody who's attractive, and they'll start flirting with these young men. And they'll say, hey, I think you're cute. Uh, We should. And they talk sometimes even for weeks. And then this account will ask for an explicit photo of the young man. And that young person um, who's excited to be talking to a, a girl online will maybe send that photo 
And and then the instant that photo is sent, the young woman will then um, demand – or not the young woman. The person who's purporting to be yeah. a young woman will demand money and uh, threaten to spread those images. And that's what we're dealing with here. Right. It, it's interesting, and, and you touched on it, just how sophisticated this is. I mean, you know, to target young men who, who are going to be vulnerable in some respects and maybe emotionally susceptible to this kind of a, a recruitment of girls showing attention, there's some flattery involved. But to these young men who are, it seems in many cases, trying to do some what we would call due diligence, they're looking at these accounts, trying to get a sense of how real this is. When you've got what looks like a real account, it's got followers, it's got a whole history of, of photos, it, it might seem legit. So what kind of work, I guess, groundwork is going into to these these efforts? Because they do seem quite sophisticated. This is a highly organized effort. Uh, much of this is coming um, out of West Africa. There are organizations that are targeting young men, not just in the United States, but in all of the English, Western English-speaking countries, like you mentioned earlier in the interview. Um, and they are um, targeting them by the thousands. We're talking many, many thousands of people receiving messages like this. Um, and uh, the main countries that uh, law enforcement authorities told me uh, they're coming from is Nigeria and the Ivory Coast. Now, here in the United States, um, we have an extradition treaty with Nigeria. And so uh, just in the last couple of weeks, uh, two men have been extradited to the United States for targeting an American teenage boy who ended up, unfortunately, committing suicide as a result of this. They are now being prosecuted in um, American courts. Um, but uh, the Ivory Coast, uh, the United States does not have an extradition treaty. So I spoke with Homeland Security Investigations, uh, who is traveling to the Ivory Coast um, here in the next couple of months, and they're trying to work out operations with law enforcement there and trying to figure out a solution to this. Um, but it's a problem that it's not going away, especially so long as it's lucrative yeah. uh, for for these scammers. Now, of course, there are individual people that are just out there doing this, but there also are really organized, targeted groups um, in West Africa that are um, going after these young men. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the challenge in dealing with this, I mean, on the one hand, you know, you've got these uh, international jurisdictional issues, you know, they're just the challenge uh, of trying to find out who is responsible for, for a certain individual crime. But then, the, you know, the whole challenge of coming forward. And this gets to, you know, what these kids are dealing with once they realize what's happened here, uh, the shame of it all or, or the feeling that maybe police aren't going to be able to do anything or the sense that maybe it's just easier to, to throw a few hundred dollars these people and hope that they go away. So there's a real challenge in, in investigating and prosecuting these cases for all those reasons. A massive challenge. Uh, let's take a look at the numbers here. Uh, according to law enforcement, uh, in 2022, they received about 10,000 tips about targeting. Uh, already this year, by the end of July 2023, that number had increased to 12,500. Now, law enforcement experts think that that's just the tip of the iceberg, that there are many, many thousands more of people that are not reporting this, that are so you know ashamed and scared. They just want to make this go away, like you said. Uh, 
if you look um, at chat boards online, support groups online, you will find so many men talking about their boys, really, I should say, talking about their experience and what they did and mentioning that they never reported it. They would never do a thing like that. They are scared, perhaps, to tell their parents, and they're absolutely frightened to talk to law enforcement. They think that they might be targeted. Uh, you mentioned um, maybe paying these scammers to go away. No, 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 no. That does not happen. If you pay them, they target you even harder because yeah. they know that you have a source of money and they will just dive deeper and deeper. And sometimes they will contact you months later and say, remember me? Uh, and so the best course of action, according to experts here, is to not pay the scammers um, to block them, to report them, and to, you know, just just walk away. Now, by reporting them, you can report them in the United States and around the world um, to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, uh, which will then route your report to law enforcement. You can also, of course, report them to the platforms where it's happening, and they are responsible um, and required in the United States by federal law to report it um, to the appropriate law enforcement. But paying them is not the, the option. And th this is also something important to speak to parents here. Look, it's important to have rules for online use for your young the young men and women in your in your family, right? But you you must also open a window to them being comfortable to speaking with you and if they get in trouble. You do yeah. not want their fear of being in trouble with their parents to hinder their ability to ask you for help. So when talking to your children, be sure to keep the ground rules that are appropriate for your family, but say, look, if you're in trouble, you can talk to us and have some kind of amnesty exit where you can work on this together and they won't uh, be fearful of looking for help. Because it is in those moments of isolation and feeling they can't go to anyone that tragedy strikes. Rob, we've seen in the last year or so about a dozen teenagers commit suicide as a result of this. And um, there may have been even more that we don't know about. And and so many of those occurred because, you know, they just felt like they had nowhere else to go. But there are options, um, both uh, official options, but also through your family. And you should seek those out. Yeah. And I, it's important to understand, I mean, you know, especially to a teenager, how world shattering this would seem just, you know, the, the, the deep humiliation of it all, you know, the feeling that, you know, this is ruining my life. Like, you know, this is a big deal. And it really comes through in your piece and yet an opportunity to speak to families, you know, right across the United States, these teenagers themselves and what they went through. And it, it is quite harrowing. Yeah, I spoke with several families whose sons had been through this, um, and it included one who thought his life was completely over, and so much so that he called his mom to say goodbye. And he began to attempt, and I'll let the listeners know that I will be talking about suicide here for just a moment, um, and I want to give you mm -hmm. an opportunity to prepare for that. But he he began to to cut himself, and his father was able to was nearby and was able to run and rescue his son and his mother arrived a few moments later and um thank god he reached out to his parents even if you know to say this and this was a young man whose intimate photos had been sent to several of his extended family members um we spoke to other um young men who were 
uh, on trips with school in in Europe um, and and texted their parents at three o'clock in the morning saying, help, I don't know what to do. And his parents had to coach them through this um, uh, over text message because of the international um, distance that they were um, – Story after story of, of these young men, there are so many more, and I'm so grateful for these families for being willing to come forward and tell us this story because it is, it is through these stories that we can hopefully share what is going on um, with other families, uh, which I would encourage uh, parents. Even if there's no uh, maybe sign that your son is is engaging with this, uh, he or she might have had an experience with this or might have friends. And it's okay to open the door, even if it's a little nervous and, uh, and awkward to, to speak about it, but you won't regret doing so. Right. That's the thing. And it's not it's not about blaming the victim or saying the victims did anything wrong, but through awareness and education, it seems like that that can be an effective way of, of reducing this. It absolutely can be. You want to have this conversation, even if it's an awkward ice to break. Um, but I think anyone who has been a teenager, especially a, a former teenage boy like you and I used yeah. to be, um, we understand where this is coming from. We understand the vulnerability of that age. Uh, look, the, especially young people now, they are often living in their phones. It is their entire world. And if that world is shattered to them, their life is shattered. And and I do think that that's why it's important to take a step back and realize that life is larger than social media and the phone. And I think parents should um, be having conversations and be thinking about um, how their teens are approaching social media, whether it's not using it at all um, for some families, not all, um, but um, but also just, just having an awareness. Now, I will say that the social media companies, Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, have absolutely notice this and yep. they are taking steps to try to protect teens uh, from this kind of victimization, although it's incredibly difficult. But it is good to see these companies um, stepping up and, and making efforts to do so. Yeah, because it's probably not realistic to just withdraw from the digital world altogether or to tell you know, teens, and, and this is where much of their social lives are, that you just can't inhabit that world, right? So, yeah, sure, if teens weren't online in the first place, this wouldn't be an issue. But it's it's about how to navigate all of that safely, isn't it? Well, yeah, and every family needs to take an approach that works for them. Um, mm -hmm. I wouldn't judge a family that says no social media at all, nor would I judge a family that has safe social media access. Um, every family is different. But think of it this way. You, you want to teach your children how to swim. You want them to be able, as they exit your home when they're 18 or in their early 20s, to be able to swim in the deep end of a pool. Well, you also want them to be able to navigate the way people communicate in the world. And um, it's important in however you do it to, to teach them how to safely use this. And it, and it goes beyond just sextortion, right? It, it goes into using these while um, retaining a life beyond it and yeah. making sure that you're your mental health is engaged because, yes, we have seen research that increased usage of certain social media apps, um, especially for young women. Um, we've seen data showing that um, there are higher levels of, of mental illness, and, and, and that research continues. Um, but uh, these things can't just be done um, without thinking deeply about them and approaching them um, in a healthy way. They are, these are powerful tools. They've connected the world in ways that human beings never have before, and if we're not approaching 
approaching them thoughtfully, um, th then we're going to be in trouble as we've seen. And, and so that's why it's important uh, for parents and teens to open communication lines at the very least. Have these conversations with your kids um, and make make it a safe place for them to come and say, hey, look, can I just talk to you, mom and dad, about some real stuff? Uh, and you just have to be open to that. Yeah, absolutely. Such an important issue. Much more. WashingtonPost.com. Chris, thank you so much for your time here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Rob, thank you for having me. Well, there you go. That's uh, journalist Christopher Moody. He's also a lecturer in uh, journalism and broadcasting at Appalachian State University. Uh, this lengthy piece for the Washington Post, which has been in the works for quite some time, as Chris kind of uh, took the time to speak to various families and teens across the United States who have gone through this and to hear firsthand their experiences. And, and some are really troubling, but, you know, they're, they're just examples of something that's happening all the time, including uh, here in Canada. You know, and in some cases, these are, are bluffs or empty threats, but in some cases, you know, these would-be extortionists have actually followed through. You know, one of the, the stories he shares in, in the book, or rather in, in his piece, uh, one of the families who was caught up in all of this and, and told their son, don't respond, don't send anything. And eventually then the scammers realized they weren't going to get anything. So they followed through on the threat and sent this intimate image to, I think, his entire Instagram followers, maybe, including uh, the teen's parents. So now the, the other level of concern all of a sudden now is that these images were sent to them. Now, they've got, uh, you know, an explicit image of a minor on their phones. And that's that can be dicey legally. So it's just a case of going to police, explaining the whole situation to them. And I, I think, you know, the thing is, I think police are, are sympathetic and, and understanding. But, you know, investigating, prosecuting these cases is really, really difficult. Uh, just quickly had a text here says this happened to my 16 year old son. The scammer had his nude pic, which he sent over Snapchat and they threatened to send it to all his Snapchat followers. Unless an Amazon gift card was sent. So thank goodness he didn't send that. The RCP handled it well. They were very kind to him. They also said there's really not much they can do. Welcome back. There's uh, something that's known as the, the Fermi paradox, and it concerns the whole question of whether life exists elsewhere in the universe. And the paradox is that there is almost a mathematical certainty that life must exist somewhere in the universe, and yet it's awfully quiet out there. And therein lies the paradox, something that most likely exists, yet we can't find any evidence of that. Are we any closer to finding that evidence? What might that evidence look like? Is it possible that we may have had some of that evidence close at hand? It's a, a matter that our next guest is very interested in and has been at the forefront uh, of many of these debates. Dr. Avi Lowe is Frank B. Baird, Jr., professor of science at Harvard University. He's director of the Institute for Theory and Computation, founding director of the Black Hole Initiative, uh, former chair of the Harvard Astronomy Department. He's also head of the Galileo Project and chair of the Breakthrough Starshot Advisory Committee. So he has quite a resume and I think brings a lot of scientific gravitas to this issue. He's written a new book about all of this. It's called Interstellar, Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars. Joining us to talk more about all of these issues, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, the aforementioned Dr. Avi Loeb. Professor Loeb, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. 
You talk in the book about, you know, we're at an important moment and maybe on the cusp of some pretty major discoveries and breakthroughs. I guess, first of all, why are you convinced of that? And, and further to that, why are you convinced that we're all maybe not ready for that? Well, um, we are now embarked on a path that was not taken before. Therefore, there is a chance that we'll find some low-hanging fruits because nobody picked it up. Uh, And this path uh, was pioneered over the past decade. Uh, It's the discovery of interstellar objects. These are objects that originated outside the solar system and arrived to our backyard near Earth. Mm -hmm. And um, the first one that was noticed was um, a meteor, uh, half a meter in size, Uh, that was spotted by U.S. government satellites uh, through its fireball. It collided with Earth and produced uh, a lot of light. And and then uh, the speed of this object implied that not only that it came from outside the solar system, it was moving faster than 95% of the stars in the vicinity of the sun. So it was a fast mover uh, from outside the solar system. And moreover, it exploded only in the lower atmosphere of the Earth. So um, it had material strength that is uh, tougher than all the space rocks that were cataloged by NASA over the past decade, 272 of them. So it was an unusual object, and uh, that raised the possibility maybe it's a Voyager-like mm-hmm. meteor that uh, is, um, you know, that if it were to collide with um, a, an Earth-like planet, the Voyager would appear as a meteor of unusual material strength and unusual speed. Uh, And then the second object was uh, Oumuamua that was discovered in 2017 by a telescope in Hawaii. And this uh, name means a scout in the Hawaiian language. And it was unusual in its own way. It was uh, uh, most likely flat in its shape uh, based on the the light that it reflected as it was tumbling uh, from the sun. And uh, moreover, it was pushed away from the sun by some mysterious force without showing any evaporation, no cometary tail of dust or gas. And the question was, uh, what what pushed it? And uh, I suggested that maybe it's sunlight. And indeed, three years later, there was another object discovered. That one we identified as originating from Earth, uh, from Florida in 1966. It it was launched by NASA, and uh, it was pushed by reflecting sunlight, no cometary tail, just like Oumuamua. And we know that it's because it was made of stainless steel, and it was very thin. uh, I mean, its walls were thin, so it had a large area for its mass. And so it behaved just like Oumuamua, qualitatively speaking. And uh, the question is, who manufactured Oumuamua? That's another unusual uh, uh, interstellar object. And then there was a third one uh, that appeared just like a comet. It was discovered by uh, amateur astronomer Gennady Borisov in 2019. So out of the three, the first two appear to be unusual uh, outliers Mm -hmm. relative to the rocks that we're familiar with. And uh, it's sort of like going to your backyard and uh, finding rocks that uh, are familiar, but then uh, you might notice a tennis ball that was thrown by a neighbor. So uh, that's the interesting uh, opportunity that we have in this frontier of uh, interstellar objects, and that's why I'm optimistic. Now, if we do find, uh, after you know, uh, searching more carefully, we do find a technological gadget uh, without any doubt that came from another civilization, it could be 
uh, not functional anymore, just the space trash. Uh, obviously, it will have a huge impact on uh, our understanding of our place in the universe, the meaning of our existence, right. uh, our technological future. You know, they, it means that they reached us before we reached them, and more likely that they are much more advanced than we are. They may not be alive anymore. It will have a huge impact on the way we think um, because currently the universe, the cosmos, looks lonely. I mean, we haven't found a partner, but you know, finding a partner would give a meaning to our cosmic existence. So that's why you know it would have a, it would be very important to engage in this search. But as, as you said, um, you know, I'm a, a bit worried about the, the fact that humanity is not ready for that. Uh, and in fact, uh, even the search itself. Uh, is very often ridiculed and ignored. The, any evidence is ignored, and people try to uh, basically argue that all the objects that come from interstellar space must be rocks, even if they are rocks of a type that we've never seen before. Yeah. That's the reality that I face in academia. Uh, people are not open-minded to consider something other than stones. Uh, I call that the stone age of science, where everything in the sky must be stones. Well, it's interesting because, you know, with uh, Oumuamua, the, this, this object, which we know came from outside of our, our, our solar system, I mean, that much we do know for certain, but it, it passed us by. It's, it's gone, right? So, I mean, there's that question, I guess, of what can we learn right now and what do we need to make sure that we're able to, to you know, find and catch the next one? Right. So, um, indeed, uh, this object by now is too faint for us to see. We don't know exactly where it is, and it moves far too fast uh, for us to chase it. Uh, but we shouldn't obsess with uh, a date that we had that, you know, uh, that didn't allow us to, um, to, to get any contact information uh, from the partner that we met on that date. Instead, we should continue to look for uh, rendezvous with uh, other objects that look like it. And in fact, next year, there will be a new uh, telescope that will survey the sky with much more sensitivity than the Hawaiian telescope. This one is called the Rubin Observatory that uh, was funded by the National Science Foundation in, in the U.S. And uh, it will have a camera of 3.2 billion pixels, a thousand times more pixels than uh, your cell phone camera, and um, it will survey the southern sky uh, every four days and uh, will likely discover objects like Oumuamua um, every few months. And um, uh, therefore, we will have more opportunities to learn about uh, interstellar objects than we had so far. And uh, this time around, we also have the Webb telescope that uh, could potentially uh, that observe the object from a different direction than Earth. And uh, just like having two eyes, uh, it allows you to gauge the distance very precisely, uh, and uh, it would allow us to track the uh, trajectory of any object uh, in three dimensions. And that would be very exciting. And moreover, the Webb telescope could then um, uh, measure the heat that is emitted by any object and tell us what the, the size of the object is and um, and um, the reflectance of sunlight from it. These are things we couldn't really get uh, from the limited observations of Oumuamua. So altogether, we could infer whether there is any 
propulsion of objects uh, other than the force of gravity acting on them uh, and wh what kind of material perhaps they're made of by taking a spectrum of the emission from them with the web telescope. So we will learn much more. And uh, in a way, you know, the trigger was Oumuamua. Unfortunately, we weren't ready at the time, but now I hope that we will get much more information on the next one. Right, and, and you write in the book that this is where our, our focus is, or maybe our best bet is, that maybe we're least likely to encounter some kind of a biological cr creature, you know, driving or, or flying a craft, and that what we're maybe most likely to find is some kind of inanimate object that's been created, or, or maybe even some kind of sentient object that, that's been created. Right, because um, travel through interstellar space, at least at the speeds that our spacecraft are traveling, uh, would take uh, millions to billions of years. And that's a very long time for, uh, because uh, not only the journey is very long, uh, they would be exposed to cosmic rays that could potentially destroy any cell in the human body within a matter of years. So um, I think it makes much more sense to send the gadgets, technological uh, equipment that has a brain of its own. Uh, it's impossible for the senders to um, uh, interact or um, exchange information with a probe that is uh, tens of thousands of light years away because it takes tens of thousands of years to communicate. And uh, that's too slow for any probe uh, to make decisions based on where it is. And yeah. so uh, the, what one needs is uh, uh, artificial intelligence, um, and uh, we already are getting to the point where it's as capable as the human brain almost, and uh, we haven't yet used it in space, but other civilizations were likely able to accomplish that if they had more time than we did. We just had one century of science and technology, and they may have had much more. So um, that's what I expect to, us to find if there is any functional device. Uh, these would be AI astronauts. And uh, in terms of interpreting uh, what they're seeking, for that we might need to use our own AI. Uh, it's just like breaking the Enigma code by uh, Alan Turing uh, 90 years ago um, when uh, he was uh, working on using computers to figure out what the Nazis are right. um, uh, messaging. And uh, so um, in a way... Um, he was imagining uh, the imitation game where uh, in the future computers might uh, imitate humans. The way I see it is our AI systems will try to figure out extraterrestrial AI systems and imitate them. They, w they might feel more kinship to those AI systems than to us. So in a way, we already developed some uh, alien intelligence here on Earth. Uh, that's uh, the large language models and AI systems that we have. And it's alien because, you know, it's not based on biological tissues. Uh, it's based on silicon and uh, computer hardware. And even though we train it on human-made uh, scripts, uh, it's not the same intelligence as we are equipped with. And I, I call it alien because uh, at some point, you know, when it gets uh, more complex than the human brain, we won't be able to figure it out. 
you know, we, we've sent, we've done this. We've sent probes. We've sent Voyager uh, in, into the cosmos in the hopes that maybe it, it maybe will be discovered uh, someday by some civilization. We, we have no ill intent, but is there an assumption or a fear uh, amongst us that if we were to find something similar, you know, just not just the uncertainty of not knowing who created it, but the fear of what their intention might be? Yeah, I'm not worried about it because uh, anything that arrives to Earth uh, must and it's still functional, uh, you know, must represent the technologies uh, that we don't possess yet because we haven't reached them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, um, I think it's an opportunity for us to learn um, about um, technologies that we don't possess that represent our future, perhaps a science that uh, is far more advanced than we currently have. Uh, there are many fundamental questions to which we, we don't have answers in science. We don't even know what most of the matter in the universe is. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, we had sci- uh, quantum mechanics was discovered just a century ago. So, um, uh, you know, just imagine what we may know in a hundred years, in a thousand years or in, in a million years. And if they know that already, uh, you know, it, it will be similar to a biker passing by a colony of ants. Uh, The colony of ants would not uh, pose any threat to the biker. Uh, The biker uh, would probably ignore uh, those ants and and move on. And uh, of course, uh, there are many people who worry about us, uh, you know, the risk for us, but that's a very anthropocentric view that puts us uh, uh, in an important place in the universe. And I don't think that's the case. Uh, you know, humans arrived uh, only over the past uh, few million years. Uh, that's one part in 10,000 of the age of the universe. And we are not at the center of stage. So if you arrive to a play at the end of the play and you're not at the center of stage, the play is not about you. And uh, we better... Um, figure out what the play is about by seeking other actors who have been around longer. And I think it's more of an opportunity for us to learn from a smarter classmate than uh, for them uh, in terms of us being a risk uh, or um, a a curiosity. I really don't think that we are so important. And any trip uh, that lasts millions of years you know, never started by having us in mind. Uh, if they ever come to our vicinity, they have some other intent. And we we could try and figure it out, but it's certainly not us being at the focus of their attention. Indeed. Well, the book is called Interstellar, Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars. Javi Loeb, thanks again for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.